Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B. Very interesting one for you this time around. I have a man who is an artist who lives in London. I'm in his studio in Bermondsey. His oil paintings have been exhibited in exhibitions in London, Beijing and many other places. He is self-taught. He was an architect and he is currently working on a series of paintings uh, of the Mao ethnic minority in Guizhou province in China. He's also just released his first graphic novel, which I'm holding in my hand, which is called Frankenstein's Dog. There will be a link to where you can purchase that on the blurb of the podcast. And I would urge you all to go and do it because it's kind of scary and weird and very interestingly done. So I'm welcoming to the podcast, John Whelans. Hello, Sean. How are you? Fine, thank you. <laughs> Tell me about your Frankenstein's dog and where... Well, I, I was on a very long flight to India and, and I had it in the back of my head that mm. um, he should have made a dog first as a pilot scheme, as they did in the space race with Yuri Gagarin. They yeah. put a dog up. You know. Leica. And, yeah, a Leica. Well done. And um, I've always been obsessed with horror films. So when I was on this flight, I just suddenly drew up a storyboard. I had eight hours, and the option was to look at a screen on the, the seat in front of me or, or yeah. do something. And on the flight back was another eight hours, so I tuned it up. And then it's it's been going on for two years because I'm a painter, and it's, it keeps getting put on the back burner. It so actually, when, is it when you're like n not sure what to do, you'll do another frame? I do another this? page, right. yeah. It takes about three or four days to do a page. I know. Never do a graphic novel. It's, no. it's, it's a lost, it's a long, thankless job, you know. know. Well, I mean, Dolly the Sheep is a good example of our first uh, essays into uh, cloning. Yes, absolutely. And also, the fr Frankenstein is a very interesting metaphor. I mean, even now, when you get genetically engineered crops, and the, the tabloids call it Frankenstein food, yeah. he's entered in. He's you know, he's a he's a good metaphor for uncontrolled science, uh, mob rule, violent, ugly mob, the abandoned child. Yeah, I mean. Frankenstein never taught the monster anything. In the book, he falls out with Frankenstein, the monster does, because Frankenstein refuses to be, build him a female, mm. being worried that they would breed a race of monsters. But if he built a dog, he could build a bitch, and all hell could break loose. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking. Is your Frankenstein's dog nasty? or? or no, he's, he's, no, he's not. He's, he's relatively... Is he a calming influence? He's a calming influence, and he bonds with the monster, who's obviously been incredibly unsuccessful at bonding with people. But... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that 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 again, you know, an outcome. It's like with something you were saying earlier. You know, Hitler's dog. You know, yeah. there was a dog that loved Hitler. You yeah. know, so this it's a similar. It's a Norm Macdonald. Uh, I'll put a link to his new show on on Netflix. Is his it's titled Hitler's Dog. The Fantastic. point being that there has to be a dog that every time Hitler walked into a room, just went Hitler, you're home. Hitler and <laughs> wagged its tail. I'm pleased to see you. <laughs> exactly. You know, maybe nobody else. Boring. Could. I like you, I but like where's Hitler? Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You love horror. I loved old horror films. When I read the Frankenstein, Mary Shelley book, I was only about 13. Yeah. But it bore no resemblance to the Hollywood version yeah. of, um, of Boris Karloff. You know, they built such a complex set for that that they use it again several times for The Bride of Frankenstein, which by James Whale again, which is yeah. even better. And I think they did The Son of Frankenstein. And Young Frankenstein. And Young Frankenstein. But then later, uh, Hammer picked it up and they did The Curse of Frankenstein and all sorts. So I was obsessed with those films. So do you like all horror movies? I or? pretty much do, actually. Like modern ones, like Saw and all those ones? Pretty much. Right. I'm a bit of a I, sucker. I can't watch them. I get scared. Well, my wife can't. She won't go. No. I mean, when Scream came out, which yeah. is meant to be a comedy. Yes. Or ironic. Yeah, ironic horror. I was still scared of Scream. Scared, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Tell me about what your your background. Where where do you hail from? I was born in Yorkshire, actually, but I, I came to school in the south. I originally studied architecture, and then I went to, to the Royal College of Art in London. What was it like growing up in Yorkshire? Well, I left when I was nine, you see, uh, so I've not I, not many know, memories. Not, not really, no. Where Grim, did you Where did you move it's to? It's grim up north to Bournemouth. So Bournemouth's uh, the nearest thing I have to a hometown. So they got the accent out of you. They got the accent. <laughs> yes, they, yes, they did. They definitely did. I, I had been in a Jesuit boarding school, right. so when I went to a Bournemouth art school to study, it was like I died and gone to heaven. Freedom. The, free, there were girls. There was yeah. nice liberal people yeah. that you could talk to who took you seriously. Yeah. You wouldn't recommend boarding school. I wouldn't recommend boarding no, school. Everyone who I've had on the podcast has been to boarding school, <laughs> no. especially not Jesuit. Especially not. No, yeah, 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 yeah. We've had, of course, our problems with them in Ireland. And oh God, you have, that. and you've had the Christian Brothers yeah, and all of them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I managed to avoid. Although I was sent to an Opus Day school. Really? God, they're fairly hardcore, aren't they? Yes, well. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And then you, so so you studied architecture. My sister is an architect. George, yes. hello, if you're listening, mm-hmm. tell me what you what pushed you into into architecture. Why did you pick? Well, I, I wanted. I always really wanted to be a painter, but I, I had to appease my father to get some money for a grant. He, he thought at least architecture was a profession. But as a, as a student later at the Royal College of Art, because I could draw, I made quite a lot of money drawing visual perspectives yeah. for architects, because architects usually can't draw. So, I mean, I would get 75 quid or 100 quid for a, a perspective of a building, which was a princely sum in 1967, you know. Yeah. Were you drawing a lot when you were a kid? All the time. I drew comics. When I got to the end of, say, the Eagle comic, which I loved, I, I would do the further adventures of, of Dan really? Dare. You know? Dan Dare. I could still knock you up a pretty good knight in armour. Really? Or I, I was also good at World War Two aeroplanes. Did you get into Hotspur and Tiger? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, my father was a big fan. Yeah. In fact, my father, I just mentioned before we press play, was a ventriloquist. There was a um, the wooden sheriff of, of uh, something Creek was, yes. that was, was in... Wizard, wizard, yes, and that was what set him off That's because it was it was a it was a a sheriff who was very small, yeah, and he couldn't command authority, yeah. So he built a wooden a big wooden dummy, and he sat on the dummy's knee and made it look <laughs> like the dummy was making him talk, and then he was able to kind of. And, and this caught my father's imagination. Oh, my father started becoming ventriloquist and built his own dummies and everything. Oh, fabulous. It's There's amazing a, the little triggers. That a little, little, little. Uh, I'd give anything to say my father was a, a ventriloquist, but he was actually an officer in the army. Was he? Very different. But it reminds me, there was a wonderful sketch of Vivian Stanshaw, early days, Bonzo Dog, Doodah Band, where he, he's a ventriloquist and he has a dummy, but it's a real guy sitting on his knee dressed as a dummy. And Vivian Stanshaw does all the stuff. And then he drinks a glass of water and goes, Argles. And the, the guy sitting on his knee spits it out. You realize he's had it in his mouth oh, all the time for about 10 minutes. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> so what other memories do you have like of, of growing up? What was England like at that time? Well, England was very dull until about, I think England was the 50s until about 1964. So I'm, I'm a, very much a child of the 60s. Mm. And then in, in the end of the 60s, I, I won a a scholarship from the Royal College. So I went to America and I made straight to what I thought was the epicentre of hippiedom, San Francisco. I went there just at the end of the hippie dream when Manson had just been arrested. Yeah, he had died. Doing the min- interview on the week that Manson died. We're, exactly. I remember Berkeley campus people walking around saying, Charlie is God, you know, and mm. kill the pigs. It hadn't fully sunk in. Yeah. what he'd actually done, done. Yeah, yeah. and there was a point in San Francisco where every psycho in America 
went with flowers in their hair. You know, yeah. I remember talking to my then wife. <laughs> we're literally sitting on the dock of the bay, and she said, "If we if we stay here much longer, we're going to end up like these guys." You know? Right. So we came back to London. Were you, did you feel really out of place there? Yeah? We were celebrities because because we were English. Right. I'm sure that's not true now. They thought we knew the Beatles. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and did you? Were you big into music as well? Massively, massively. Right. What into sort music. of bands do you remember being? The Stones, Jimi Hendrix, yeah, and all of the West Coast people. You know, I I, I love the Doors. I don't listen to much music from this century, to right. be quite honest. <laughs> I, I still like we're saying that now. Yeah. It is. I know. I I often use songs like I do Bob Dylan a lot. Mm. I was always massive on Bob Dylan as trigger points for um for a painting. It, you know, it might not bear any resemblance to the song, but that's my trigger point. We'll come back to your timeline again, yeah. just maybe talk about your painting. I mean, we're looking at a really beautiful piece oh, that you're working it. on right here in your studio, which is a, a carousel where it looks like the uh, horses have escaped. It's called Out of Control, right. which again is a Rolling Stones song. Yeah, yeah, it's really beautiful. <laughs> so you're, you're, how would you describe, I mean, I, I would describe your art as bright, colourful, primary... It's fur- it's verging on pop. It, yeah, it has, verging it, on pop. It has a narrative. I like the story. You know, that, that one there is, is um, a Bob Dylan song, Highway 61, which is, again, a very interesting Beautiful. song, and you could, you, could do, you could do ten different paintings. To yeah. It's just a trigger point. You were doing architecture in on the scholarship, and then did you come back and architect? I did architect right through the 70s and the right, 80s. Right. And and I had a design group which grew to about 70 people. You know, but In the end, I was just running around getting work, paying other people's mortgages. Architecture is 10% creative, yeah. 90% hustling, writing letters, sitting through incredibly boring meetings and dealing with people that you wouldn't otherwise have through your front door. You know, just, <laughs> I remember people used to come to our studio from the day one, mm. they would commission us to design a building. From day one, they had no intention of paying us. You know, yeah, my sister said the same. Yeah. But when the collapse happened in Ireland, well, it was a big collapse. Architects got yeah. hit very yeah. hard, yeah. including her company, which folded. Yes. The other thing about architecture around the sixties and seventies, especially in Ireland, but I can see it here, is just the. It just didn't age well, it, particularly social housing. And stuff social like housing is dreadful. Mm. Well, in the seventies and eighties, which lingered on until the nineties, everybody was crazy about postmodernism which now looks very very silly in toy town yeah but people like michael graves were big heroes you know yeah ireland as well and and britain with that there's just this fixation with back gardens and front gardens and taking yes. up a lot of land with yes. you know and yes. we have a huge homeless problem in ireland now absolutely ten thousand people close to are homeless and you know we just have sprawling featureless soulless yes. estates yes. with crime yes. and yes. drugs and yes we did build high, but we built high badly. Lifts out of order. It's difficult to build high good. <laughs> I mean, I quite like tall buildings that have a bottom, a middle, and a top. What do you mean so by that? They have a base, right? something, an, an event, as opposed to a plan form that's just extruded up into a, co- a higher column for as many stories as, 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 yes, as the planners will allow them. Yeah, yeah. That, that's all over London. You know, it's yeah. just... Did you get disillusioned with the business? I did, I think. I, I just wasn't having a good time anymore. Yeah, I was the same with advertising. Yeah. I, just do. I mean, it's, it, it's not dissimilar when you have a what's supposed to be a creative business yes. that just gets <laughs> tamped down yes. by the people paying the bills yes. to mediocrity. In architecture, there are an army of trained boards 
who are out to stop you yeah. doing anything good. And then the accountants come in and they will gradually whittle everything away till you end up with bland. Yeah. That's the good thing about painting. In architecture, you've got there's always somebody to blame. You can blame the client. You can blame your colleagues. You can blame the planners. You can blame the, blame the environmental health. You can blame the site. You can blame the budget. You can blame, yeah. blame the timescale. In painting, there's absolutely nobody. You start off with a blank canvas. If you finish it on the 5th of July and take it to the gallery, that's the best you can do at that point. You might do a better painting tomorrow, but yeah. you can't blame anybody. Mm. It's nobody's fault if it's a shitty painting. Yeah. You, you said you had a wife in... in, in uh, yes, I, I, I got married in America, and then I came to an English... And then I came back and immediately fell on my feet. I did a shop at a restaurant called Mr. Freedom, which made me famous for 15 minutes and right. made quite a lot of money. So I was kind of a pop designer, but that wore a bit thin and... and so Frank Lloyd Wright would have been popping up again from his sabbatical in the desert yeah. around this time, wouldn't he? <laughs> yes. This is falling water. Yes, falling water. I, I love the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, such a such an egotist, such a womanizer. At one court case for adultery, one of his many, the judge said to him, what's your occupation? And he said, actually, I'm, I'm the greatest architect in America. And the judge said, well, that's a little egocentric. And he said, look, I'm under oath. I have to tell the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> that sort of sums him up. <laughs> But he, I mean, he had a tragic life. There was a. He came home one day, and his his uh, family had been burned to death in a, in a, mm-hmm. a fire by his by his uh, mm-hmm. help. I think yes. there was a great story about on a documentary of his about uh, falling water, where because people like Johnson and those were training under him. Yes, he was, yes, he was basically yes. gone to seed. He was teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a guy, a friend of his, that I bought this place, yeah. uh, he sent all his acolytes out to record every. Yeah, yeah. tree and rock and mm, you know mm. and the guy said to him will you, will you design something he said yeah and he he, he stuck a, a, a tab up on his on his pin board saying hallelujah a client mm. he hadn't had a client in years and he, I think he was about 65 yeah. apparently Johnson tells a story that he just sat on it for weeks and weeks and did nothing yeah. and they got all the yeah. surveying done yeah. they were kind of going come on come, come on, on. Yeah. And then there was a, it was a four-hour drive from the um, airport for his friend. And his friend rang him one morning and said, have you got the thing ready? He goes, I have. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll see you in four hours. And he just sat down and he just went side <laughs> yes, elevation, yes. top elevation. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, yeah. he just let, you know, the idea of letting something stew, do you, do, do you follow that with your paintings and your art? Uh, y- yes, I do. I freak, I, I, oh, whenever I photograph a painting and say, I put it online or I'll take it to a gallery, or put it, or even on Instagram, I always regret it because I immediately think I could have made that better. It's a meditative process. Mm. So I fiddle with paintings long after I'm supposed to be finished. Well, You're Munch finished when this. they're getting worse. Munch was famous for this as well. I was yes, in Oslo. Yes. He, he, he used to just have like hundreds, on the go. maybe thousands on the go. Yeah. I completely was, understand. He was never happy with them. I completely understand. I find the same with my writing. One of the things I've had to learn moving from advertising to writing is when is it finished? And somebody will read it who maybe you you value their opinion and then they go, you know, I didn't like that bit. Yeah, and yeah, I, and yeah. because I'm from advertising, clients tend to go, you know, we're yeah. constantly seeking approval. Yes. And I suppose from architecture, you were constantly, yes. nothing was green lit until it got approval. Right? Exactly. But now to your point earlier, you're the person who has <laughs> well, to exactly. your own work. And I think it's finished when everything you're doing is starting to make it worse. Yeah, it's yeah, like writing. Point. Once you start rewriting, there comes a point where you lose 
all freshness and all spontaneity, and you forgot where you were coming from, really. But with painting, it's hard to go back. It's right? hard to go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do a lot of work in China, and for various ex- for expediency, I do watercolours because it's easy to get them out on right. pieces of paper. But watercolour, you can't make a mistake. It's very unforgiving. Yeah. Whereas oil paint, you can just paint splash over. a bit of white on and do it again. Yeah. So you, you're saying you came back with your wife, you, you hit the big time, you hit the jackpot with this... Um, Mr. Freedom. Mr. Yeah. Freedom. Then I formed a design group, and, and then I gradually became disillusioned. And then I just decided... So it was design. your own company? Yes, it was oh. called Crichton. I was a coder. I was an art coder. So then I did really what, you know, about 15 years ago, what I've really always wanted to do, and I just, knowing nothing about the art scene. That's both a, a good thing and a bad thing, to be an innocent sometimes. You know. yeah, <laughs> and uh, so I just started doing paintings, and I nagged a figurative, a good figurative art dealer in London called Francis Kyle Gallery, and I wore them out until eventually they decided to represent me, and that's, that's when I started seriously painting for, for a living. So, to, so talk me through your disillusionment and how long it took you to... Leap over the wall, if you want to use it. To leap over one bounty <laughs> was free. Yeah. Um, my, marching to the sunlit uplands. <laughs> yeah. It was just that I realised I wasn't designing anything anymore. Yeah. What I was doing was pretty formulaic rubbish and derivative. Right now, I mean, if I went back to architecture, I just wouldn't know where to begin. Mm. I don't know what you would do. When I was a kid, when I was a student, the people that taught architecture were in two camps. You know, there, there were hardcore modernists who thought Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe was, that was it, basically. Yeah. There was a couple of loonies uh, who liked people like Charles Rennie Mackintosh. Mm. Then there was another camp who were in the sort of Frank Lloyd Wright group. Yeah, Geary and people like Geary, that. Yeah. yeah, and that was it. And then postmodernism came along yeah. and everybody, there were no rules anymore. But there were rules then. The modernists, rightly or wrongly, had a code. They had a sort of set of rules. I know a lot of brutalist buildings have been knocked down, but some of them were quite good. They yeah. just required proper maintenance, you know. But they had at least a set of rules. When there were no rules, and now there are, I don't know where you would begin. You know, there's there's postmodernism, there's crash geometry, blamange type stuff, there's spiky stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, I M Pays one in the Louvre, I think, is really interesting. I M Pays is I very interesting. That. Yes, I, mean, I, I love that building. Yeah, I mean, it's yes. so brave. It is brave, and, that, and that's that's a that's a part. But he is fundamentally. A modernist, yeah, I yeah. would say. You know, and, and I mean, I think London are doing it now a little bit. I'm not sure whether. I mean, what do you think of the shards and gherkins and all the stuff that's popping up all over London the last ten years? I like the shard. I don't like what it stands for. What I'm does not it stand sure about. It's it stands for ridiculous capitalism. Actually. Yeah, towering over the towering over Tower everything. of London. I mean, and the gherkin. You know, I mean, if you wanted to do an office building, well, a circular floor plan is not the best thing to do because <laughs> yeah. your desks are square. So it's first of all a loopy idea, mm. you know, to do a circular floor plate. But well, the Guggenheim is a good example. The Guggenheim is a perfect example of how not <laughs> to do an art gallery. Art, that's but where art and that's where it all started. Yeah. That's where it all started. How not to do an art gallery? But I mean, I've been through the Guggenheim, and mm, me too. Uh, you don't because well, when it first came out, the artists were pissed off because you're, everything's at a slight angle, but like, you don't really notice it. No, you don't. To be honest, I mean, yes, it's, it's yes. such a sloping. Mm. I mean, and, and if there's anything about Lloyd Wright, he was definitely form over function because half oh. his buildings were just pure, pure and, form using yeah. function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's there is another there's another way. Without a set of rules, you get architects who are really basically sculptors. Mm. They've got an idea. I mean, the late Zaha Hadid, bless her, had the same approach whether she was designing 
a hospital or a dentist's surgery or a private house. Mm. You got a Zaha Hadid. It's a sculptural form. But, you know, it bore no relation to requirements. Come up with a piece of sculpture, then make it work. Yeah. Make it fit the brief, which is the antithesis of modernism. Mm. Opera House, Sydney, thoughts? Well, that's the fir- that's the f- that's one of the first ones. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's essentially a sculptural icon, isn't it? Yeah. Pull, pulled out of the bin, though. Pulled out of the bin, yeah. But riddled with trouble, yeah. massively expensive. Only just finished the Only inside. just finished, yes. <laughs> Again, <laughs> yeah. it great from the outside, but not so great for a music venue. Yeah. Well, that was the problem with Zaha Hadid and her ilk. Mm. Nobody could cost their buildings. They could yeah. never get a competitive quote. Yeah, so, end, so original. Yeah, it was all computer designed and nobody wanted to build it. So in the end, whoever did, the Olympic swimming pool is a good example. Only one guy contractor agreed to do it and he was virtually given an open cheque. So it went from 200 million to 600 million and then they cut lots of it out and it still kept going up. And that's the problem with that kind of sculpture or stuff. As an architect, when you were younger, did you always dream to do a world famous appreciated no 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 definitely not i i i, I li- that's another reason i li- I, I like much smaller scale things i mm. liked housing my heroes were all the people in the vienna secession and charles Rennie mackintosh right. who i thought was the the best all-round designer ever because he could do buildings he could do chairs lamps fabrics wallpaper anything i mean i was trying to get to the point where you going to yourself i don't like getting up to go to work in the morning, I don't enjoy, I'm not happy. Was that where you got Pretty to? much, yes. It's black depression, actually. Yeah. I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, in the end, I was just doing the sketch design for buildings and other people were making them work. Yeah. So to this day, I can drive around, say, Wimbledon and I see a block of flats and I think, oh, that looks vaguely familiar. Actually, I designed that, you know. <laughs> it, was got, it got that bad. You know, yeah. Ridiculous. Can you remember what your first week, day was like when you said, I am no longer an architect, I am now a painter. The trouble with painting, this is the recurring problem I still have, is once you crack the technical bit, once yeah. you know how to mix colours, get colour right, once you know about perspective, skiography, which is plotting shadows, once you know about composition, once you can say, I saw a teacup like this and just draw it and it's a perfect ellipse and it looks like the teacup, then you've got all the technical stuff out of the way. What do you actually paint, you know, mm. that isn't derivative and that, that hasn't been? And at first I thought, I loved old masters, so I will Dutch still lights, for example. I will subvert that tradition, but I yeah. will do it in, in a pop way. That yeah. was my, that's my starting point. And then all of my heroes were people like, illustrators actually, like Maxfield Parrish uh, in America, I, I thought were the best painters. And I thought Peter Blake was a very good painter. But what did you, know, you feel about people like Warhol and, I suppose, Banksy and people like that who are, who are very pop? I don't think history will be very kind to Andy Warhol. When he was alive, his, he wouldn't sign his prints. His manager signed them, the factory manager. But then that guy left and another manager so, came. <laughs> signature so change. his signatures are not as valuable as the first manager. <laughs> because when the first manager signed the prints, Andy was in the building. Okay. Connoisseurs of, of, of the half-arsed... Yeah. We will be able to detect a second manager's signature of Andy Warhol from a first manager's. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And we've just, we're also um, recording this podcast when somebody has just spent $450 million, million on a potential 
the put- well, there's, the there's a joke about that. Is it shouldn't have been in an old master's sale because the Leonardo you're talking about, yeah. because so much of the painting is new, it should be in modern painting. I Salvatore mean, Mundi, I think it's called. Yeah, the, the, the Christ. It's interesting, 400 million. As I remember from my Catholic education, uh, ironically, Christ was a little bit distasteful about people with massive amount of money. But it's a poor Leonardo painting. And at that time, it's known that he, he had loads of assistants and uh, it's been overpainted, varnished, repaired. I mean, it's the ultimate trophy, isn't it? Someone said it's no, it's no, Mona, it's no Mona Lisa. Well, the Mona Lisa, well, well, you know, that's also an interesting story because he mm. painted that of that size on a... It's you know, tiny, quite, yeah. It's tiny on a piece of wood and he wrapped it in a blanket and took it around with him all his life on the back of a horse because it was his calling card. He would just turn up in some city and say, this is what I can do. Give right. me a job, you know. Yeah. Would people have known back then that that was, oh, that's really good? I suppose that, uh, that technique he had, I think, I can never say the word, it's sfumato. Yeah. That smoky... And smile. also the perspective going the back. The perspective back. behind, yeah, yeah. 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 It, I, th- I think that was that was a first, you know. Yeah. I think people would have known that he was a maestro. But he also had a tendency to use very experimental materials and pigments as well. Yeah. Half his stuff's falling to bits. Walnut you know. wood and all this kind of Well, stuff. and The Last Supper is just, you know, it's a wreck. It's not... Uh, well, so wh- where does Banksy fit in, a modern street art? Does that well, Banksy, annoy I think you as an architect? It doesn't annoy me, no. I, 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 I kind of fond of Banksy. I like the idea at the beginning where he went to galleries and put his own paintings up. Sorry, <laughs> that's just brilliant. Yeah, I know. 90% of art is crap. That's not unrealistic. It's not. It's not surprising. Ninety percent of literature isn't worth reading. True. Most films aren't worth seeing. You know. yeah, yeah. I don't know how many plays I've walked out of at half time. You know, it, it, it's a theatre. There is a lot of rubbish. Yeah. You know. And this is. And ninety percent uh, of ads are crap. Ninety percent of ads. Of but, ads and also, the world uses up images at an enormous rate. If you mm. take ads, for example, yeah. you can make an ad, and it's shown in the cinema for Volkswagen or something. Yeah. And everybody laughs and. The next time you sit, you're bored stiff. In actual fact, the minute it's made, in 20 seconds it's in Tokyo and everybody's got tired of it. And the world uses up images. And somebody's seeing a pastiche of it. And yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's at the most <laughs> alarming rate. So you have to kind of keep feeding images into, into the system. Really, yeah. and, and they just get spurned, chewed up, you know, and spit yeah. out. What, what year was it when you stopped being an architect and started it was, being... It would be in, in, in the 90s. Right, okay. Yeah. And when did you meet Natalie? Late. Oh, I met Natalie oh, in, in the late 70s. The late yeah. 70s, because yeah. John's wife, Natalie, who has been a former guest on the podcast, Natalie Gibson, if you want to scroll back and listen to her, she is a very central character in Central St. Martin's. She's in charge of textiles. Um, and I'm actually in the same house. And Natalie has a very eclectic... As I said to her, she's very easy to buy for for Christmas. Yes, yeah, she, <laughs> she is, and she isn't. Yeah, yeah. But Natalie has, has been. F- Natalie has. I should mention that because she has been a massive influence. Because Natalie has. How did you guys meet? It's a, a complicated, complex story. But Natalie actually taught my first wife. Oh, okay. It's very incestuous. Were you? Fr- were they friends? They were. Yes. Oh. Yes. It's all very incestuous. Oh. And, Am uh, I getting a scoop here? <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, she, she has, uh, she has a, a, a terrific uh, sense of colour, which I, I find very liberating, which I didn't know about. And I, I, you know, Natalie has has a has a home. I think they've lived. She's lived here since nineteen sixty one. That's think, right. Yeah. And it is full of colourful trinkets. It's like a Aladdin's cave. 
And it's interesting when I first interviewed because she has little robots and little horses and rabbits and cats and plants and flowers. And this was an influence on your art. Yes, well, the little robots and me, the cats are Italian, actually, but the yeah. robots, yeah. That was another thing when I, when I was thinking, what do you paint? How do you subvert the, the Dutch still life tradition? You know? And I thought, well, little toys, unimportant things. I mean, I've always been metal robots. I've always been more interested in, in low culture as, yeah. as opposed to, to, to high culture. Yeah. Know? There's a dresser in the kitchen downstairs, which is chock-a-block yeah. with stuff that I guess has been randomly put there over yeah. the years. Yeah. And John did a painting of the dresser, which, which is took very... Months. Which I <laughs> and that was the only time all of the objects were ever cleaned properly. Because yeah. I, <laughs> I kept finding teacups that had a handle missing, so I glue it on for yeah. the paintings. Yeah. The painting is it is is it at its most pristine and intact? Yeah. So you, the, what's interesting I, I want to talk about was your coming together, where you have a a person like Natalie who's very bohemian and very I'm trying to get the right word, but you know she likes scatter and color. She, and, she, and you were a very kind of. I, I used to live in a, a, I used to live in a, a white flat with a white floor and a white cat and white furniture. I really did. Right. I was it was in lots of magazines, and in the end, I was hardly living there because I was living here. It was yeah. a set. Yeah, yeah. And uh, modernism is a was that a facade? It was a facade. I now realise at the yeah. time I thought it was great, but yeah, you know, I, I, yeah. So when you found when you when you found Natalie when you came together, was there was there a kind of a. <laughs> change in your life that was like oh, oh ma ma massively although we do have quite a lot in common i don't think natalie has has boundaries of, in terms of stuff that she really thinks is absolutely awful you know i'm i'm more i'm more severe i i, I my, my taste is more back into the vienna secession and all that stuff you know? right but natalie is is a victoriana really yes yes and yeah. 50s and you know Explain to me, because I don't really know about the Vienna Secession, you've mentioned it twice. Well, the turn of the century in Vienna, a group of artists and architects who peeled away from the mainstream. Egon Schiele was the, the key drawer, Otto Wagner was the main architect. They even built their own building in, in Vienna, which was called the, the Golden Cabbage by uh, Joseph Maria Olbrich. And th they turned away from the public taste and Klimt was the main okay, artist. Okay. But their motto was... I'm paraphrasing it, an art for its time. Don't keep copying historical styles, as the emperor was doing in the Ringstrasse. You know, mm. let's do a new, let's do a new thing, and that's why they were called the Secession because they broke away. To an enormous influence. Still, one of my favourite painters is probably Klimt, and the best, the best life drawer of a female human form ever is, is Egon Schiller. Just that wonderful nervous line that nobody before our senses got right. You know? How hard do you think it is to... I mean, given the human... I mean, because because art is such a, a fundamental thing that sets us apart from yes. the animals. Yes. How hard is it to innovate? How hard is it to... Not to well, exactly. That is, this is the problem. It's, everything is postmodern. Everything is derivative. It's like music now, you know. Yeah. It is hard to innovate, you know. It, all you can do is hope to have a different take on something. Yeah, you know. When but when then, when people are, uh, who think they're seriously innovative, I I always find they're invariably not. People like I don't know, uh, 
the dregs of the painting world, I, like Gilbert and George, I would think were pretty poor. But I'm sure they believe they're wonderfully innovative. But you, so, so um, what do you call them at the urinal? Um, Marcel Duchamp. Yeah, so, so Duchamp... Well, he, well, Duchamp, you see, did it. He, but he, was, he, was, he was trying to be smart arse. He was that. trying to be a smart arse, but yeah. he realised that he'd, he'd, he'd entered a cul-de-sac. You know, there was nowhere else to go. M- most conceptual stuff is really a simply reworking of a Marcel Duchamp idea. You know, I think yeah. he was very interesting. Yeah. And where, uh, do you, where do you stand on people like Rothko? I, I've, he's an exception, and I, th- I think I do think Rothko. I can stand in front of a Rothko, and I can tell, or to me, it is a great painting. Yeah, I, I, I there is something about a Rothko. I've really tried. I mean, have I've, you tried? Well, a lot of people. The orange have. ones, like you, yeah, I know a yeah. lot of people have. Yeah. You know. I've really tried to understand um, Jackson Pollock, Jack the Dripper, but I but can't. So I, I read about him that the, that it's it's uh, fractal. Okay. <laughs> so but I, it made it, at least it made more sense than something made, like you know that, that apparently you know like a tree and the branch yes and the little twig yes. they're all like yeah a, a miniature of the big tree and you don't know like if you if you if you take a tiny piece of of a pollock yes you don't know whether that's the full painting or a small section oh of that's it. very interesting yes yes um yeah. and that it is all even though i've seen him working or he's yes, just like yeah. looks like he's just like yeah uh yeah and then you know when 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 Warhol comes out with a soup can or Tracy Emin doesn't make her bed, or but well, Tracy Emin it seems to me is exactly doing what what Marcel Duchamp did. Mm. I I can't see any difference. I think that gang they're not so young. The Bristol YBAs, that gang we're very lucky really. Yeah, you know. Well, they um, also had Charlie Saatchi. Who they had Charlie throwing Saatchi money throwing money at them. Money them. Yeah. them. But another good example of an advertising man made good, of course, is Jeff Koons, you know, yeah. who, who took it to the logical extension. Yeah. You know. Now, you could look at his stuff, and it's fine, as long as you don't listen to his post-rationalised explanation. That, that is too much to take. <laughs> he should just shut up. And what about Roy Lichtenstein? Well, again, I have a soft spot for him, because he took my favourite... Comics. Low art. He, yeah. he, he made it important. I have always had a soft spot, but I think people, uh, you know, the, the high art people do, would probably sneer at Roy. Even, even people who like pop art or aficionados would probably sneer a bit now at Roy Lichtenstein. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's aged that well. Or something, exactly. You know? it's, it's probably it's, what you said about Warhol. Yeah, yeah. Your stuff, let's get back to that, and we, I'll put a <laughs> link on to uh, the, the end of the podcast so you can see some of. John's work, I have to say, is extremely original looking. Well, thank and, you. And I, I, it's very challenging work. I find like I want to get involved. Even the one that we're looking at here, all the horses are escaping, as I said earlier, from a <laughs> from a carousel. But there's, you know, there's other stuff happening. There's a balloon gone off up in the distance, and yes. the clouds are threatening, and maybe. But there is a sort of mad narrative there. I'm not entirely sure what I've, what it is. It's out of control. The thing about my paintings is, I, I mean, they don't come easy, actually. Mm. I, I do incredibly complicated drawing, which I mess about with for ages. I then blow it up to the right size. It's on drawing on tracing paper and yeah. pencil. And then I trace it onto a canvas and I paint half of it out. <laughs> so it, yeah. But it's a kind of, it's a tribal dance to get started. Mr. Whistler used to paint his, his paintings, his canvases with tea to start off with brown because it wasn't so frightening as white but you've got to start somewhere and it's that you can sit here thinking what the hell do I do here you know? so it's an evolutionary 
Is the day that you take this down and put a white one up, a white canvas up, a it's challenging a day? day. It's yeah. a very challenging <clears throat> day, yeah. But I'm usually plotting one in my head when right. I'm doing this. I am now, you know. And then tell me about the, sorry to, one of one of the things I keep getting out through my podcast mm. is, how do you monetize it? And my answer is, you don't. This is very much a labor of love. And well, you, if, if you want to make a good living, don't do painting. Yeah. First of all, the gallery system is such that most decent dealers t- take 50%. You need 15, at least 15 good paintings to have an exhibition. You know, you, you, it, it's very, very difficult. Most artists, you know, teach or do other things. Or it's very difficult to make a... The problem is there's never been a time... This struck me the other day. I've never known when there were so many art supplies shops in the world. Yeah. In London, there's hundreds of them. There's one called... Cass Art, which has a slogan, let's turn everybody in this town into an artist. Well, they bloody well succeeded. There were so many people who were sort of hobby painters, which is fine. Mm -hmm. I'm not knocking that. But there's an awful lot of people who are also extremely deluded, who believe they may be discovered or believe they have. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know that somebody else did that kind of painting 100 years ago better. Or that Marcel Duchamp had the idea, you know. Yeah, the being discovered bit mm. and the the frenzy that's suddenly like you know suddenly one of your paintings mm. could pop, right? It could, and then all of your paintings are great. Yes, yes, that's that's you know what I mean. And then because some guy like a Charlie Sachi yes. said, "This is that's the guy I'm good. going to anoint with my sword." Precisely. And or, or the other alternative, more likely scenario, is what my father told me, was if you, if you go and be a painter, you'll end up living in a garret cutting off your ear. Yeah. You know, that, that's the Madness. Other. Madness. Yeah. You know, bohemian madness. You know, and the then posthumously myth. you'll be famous and none of it, your... Well, your part to be... <laughs> the, great, the great thing about the bohemian myth is you have to die young. You see, I'm too mm. old to die young. But you, you well, know. tell me about that. Do you feel that this 20, 25 years part of your life third chapter if you want yes has been fulfilling it has these will be here forever well that's the terrible thing about paintings especially (laughs) oil paintings people never throw away oil paintings they put them in the attic they chuck them on skips and somebody takes them off the skip any flea market you'll find dreadful dreadful Victorian chocolate box paintings often when somebody's put their fist through them but they're still they're an oil painting it has a sanctity yeah you know which nothing else has it's very odd but do you I mean you you mentioned earlier that you you can drive past a building that you designed which will be there for until the apocalypse yes you know but, but do you find it more fulfilling for you as a life lived that your art will survive and go on. I I, I I do I do. I mean that sounds fantastic. I don't think it is. I don't I, think I it is. No. But I have a I have a fairly Panglossian view about the whole thing of painting. You know, uh, I, I, I mean it, it, what you were saying earlier, the monetary side of things. The truth is, and this is really the truth, that I would do it anyway. It's right. quite a happy accident that occasionally people buy my paintings, yeah. but I, I wouldn't know really what else to do yeah but like for example i mean this is going to be this is a terrible question to ask you but imagine if you had all of your paintings were in a lockup somewhere and it went on fire and they all were burned tomorrow mm-hmm. how would you feel oh I'd, I'd feel very sad because it'd be like burning your diaries right the thing about paintings they but it are, wouldn't be like burning your children would it wouldn't be like burning no your children. you'd get over it i'd get over it i could look at old paintings that i did and i could tell exactly 
the state of mind I was in when I did them, yeah. and what I was into and what I was interested in, and mm. whether they came easily or big trouble. They're, they're a visual diary, sometimes yeah. a bit frightening. You, you talk about your interest in horror and gothic. We talked about that mm. at the start of the podcast. Even though your paintings are very bright and primary colours, there's an, always an element of darkness in them. Is that fair? That's fair, Somewhere. Yeah. I mean, yes. you've got a tiger, you've got threatening clouds. Yes. Even the Bob Dylan one, the background is not, yes, you know, the, it's mean streets. And Yes, it's mean streets. It's mm. actually old old New York buildings yeah. that were just destroyed. Yeah, there isn't that narrative. Otherwise, you drift into chocolate box. Yeah. I, I, like a, I like a bit of darkness, to yeah. be quite honest. Yeah. <laughs> That's why... I mean, Do you find that painting therapeutic from that point of view? Very much, very much yeah. so. The, the other thing about art and... Um, when I look around your the art that you have on display here is people could look at a painting and put your that's very you yes right Does do you ever feel a bit like maybe, maybe musicians and bands mm. sometimes they go bin the past and go somewhere new well yes and, and just taking you back to the Andy Warhol question I don't like art sort of coffee table books that I get this with Andy Warhol I turn over a page look at it I've got the picture I'm fed up with it. I've got the next yeah. page. I like a, something that has some sort of narrative or something that isn't immediately op- obvious. Yeah. If there's a narrative or if there's something a bit more going on, that's yeah. what I like. You know? yeah. And I'd really admire technique. So whenever I look at paintings, I admire, you know, I'm not really thinking, well, is that great or do I, would I like to? How did he do that? You know, I look yeah. at that uh, Gustav Klimt and I think, well, how did he do that? And then you find out that someone like Klimt was actually a fantastically good academic portrait painter mm. before he went, you know, sort of psychedelic. You know. Yeah, he was a really, you know, Beaux Arts in the Beaux Arts tradition, technically excellent. Same with illustrators like Maxfield Parrish, and yeah. he could really draw. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an exhibition at Leighton House, just closed about Alma Tadema. Do you know about Alma Tadema? Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema was the most famous Victorian painter. He was bigger than the Beatles. He was called Alma Tad of the Royal Acad. Yeah. And he painted biblical scenes, uh, uh, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, Christians being thrown to the lions. Whenever a movie maker came along, like Quo Vadis or uh, Ridley Scott with Gladiator, yeah. the, the first port of call was to look at an Alma Tadema painting. And you can see in those films exact lifts right. from Alma Tadema paintings. Mm. The, the technique alone, whether you... The Bloomsbury set dismissed him as a guy who painted Victorians in togas, but in spite of what, he was a lot better painter than any of them, them were, but in spite of that, you just have to admire how clever is this? You know? yeah. How does he do that? Yeah. How long does it take him? <laughs> he was also a remarkable businessman. He once did a, a huge painting. He was president of the, the Royal Academy, and he put it in, and the, 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 the ex-president said, I don't think we can show that, Sir Lawrence, because it's got a, a Greek boy standing at one side with a rather large penis. And Amos Halber said, no problem. Got out a pair of scissors, cut the end off, framed it separately and sold it to a, a gentleman collector. <laughs> Do you think you ever will get to a point where you will feel you've done all you can? I don't know. No? No. Right. No, do you ever worry about that? I do worry about it. Yeah. Mm. I, well, I, as you, as anybody who writes or anybody yeah. who, who 
drying up is a is a. a have you ever hit a wall? Or? I have done. Mm. I could see that happening with people who make films. Actually, if you've covered most of the genres in movie making, what do you do? You know, just you you, Same. you subvert the, 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 the narrative and do a, a mm. twist. Well, I, I, one of my, my favorite movie makers are, are the Coen Brothers. Oh, my too. My too. I, just, I mean, I love the because way because they're brilliant writing as well. Excellent writing and characters. Yes, yes. crazy characters. Yes, yes. I watched The Big Lebowski again last weekend. Oh. I mean, it's, it's my third favorite movie of all time. My favorite movie of all. It's time. It's in my top ten. Yeah, my favorite movie sure. of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. I just it? think that is yes. magnificent yeah. and. The life of Brian. I the love. life of Brian and, is good. And, but the the narrative mm. of the Big Lebowski is dreadful. It's like it's not. It doesn't even really make sense. Who, there isn't really a much of a plot. Yeah, no, it, and it, they, it, they it's a meandering. It's plot, a meandering plot. They, the Coens said that's irrelevant. It's about yes. a guy who's just drifting from one problem to another, and yes. the dude tries to, yes. you know, to and, cope with it. Yeah, he's yeah. just trying to cope <laughs> with life. Mm. I find it difficult to say a favorite film. I could say a favorite. Genre, I could say a favourite Western has to be a Little Big Man because right. I love that idea. Yeah. The Cheyenne translated means the human beings. Yeah. And the old Indian says to uh, Dustin Hoffman that there are an, an endless supply of white men but only a limited number of human beings. That's a great line. <laughs> I went to see the new Blade Runner. So did I. I loved it. I loved it too. My wife, Natalie, hated it so there's just too much whizzing around yeah, I, I know what she means this one well this one felt like it was for maybe stupid people like me trying to close the loop and make sense of you know whether Harrison Ford's character was a replica or not yes. were you sure about that and I don't think I don't think you're stupid Sean and I yeah. don't think it was made for people <laughs> like you I, <laughs> um, but I thought it was I thought it was beautiful one of the things that they they kept going on about the original was that they missed Things like the internet and mobile yes, phones, yes. and they kind of kept, they kept that out, that out, right? Yeah, Even though there I, was, you know, I, that's I hadn't really. You just pointed that out. Yeah, they they said it's that. forty years later or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So they've actually kept that same universe. Yes. And it has improved, yes. but it's improved in its own direction. Yes. Yes. It, they haven't gone oh quick. We better put all mobile. We better put all better modern put, yes, technology. Yes. Put yeah, yeah, yeah. And I loved it as well back in the day when they had like from an advertising point of view some of the references like Atari. Pan Am, yes, and they still have the they Pan still Am have, signs yeah, yes. and stuff. Still, which is set, beautiful. The, you know? the, the Pan Am sign somehow survives the dystopia. Exactly, it's, it's there. Know, because somewhere there's probably a what do you call him, Freddie Laker sign somewhere in probably, London. Yes, you yes, know, Freddie Laker. There's a <laughs> for his gone bust airline. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to do a, a radio interview which ended with the words Freddie Laker. <laughs> We're not finished. <laughs> no, no, because no. Okay. one of the other things I wanted to say to you was um, your art versus. The shape of the world. How do you feel about the world that you live in today? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Or? Again, I have a I have a fairly Pangrossian view of it all. Right. I'm afraid. How do you live in a in, in a, a completely sick society? Schizophrenia, QED. You know? I was staying in 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 a, in a hotel on the Ganges, so Varanasi, where they Varanasi, burn yeah. Varanasi, where yeah. they burn all the bodies. It's like a death cult. I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. But outside of my window, there was there was a bench. By the side of the gantry, were two lepers sat there, a, a, a woman and presumably her daughter. Hard to tell. They were in advanced stages. They'd lost their noses and the ends of their fingers, and they sat there every day with a blanket and a tin can and that to get money. And that's that was their life. I gave them a fifty rupees or every day. There's no point in giving more because they have pimps who just take it from them. Yeah. But that was their life, and it's hard to say whether they're content because they didn't know, they didn't know what anything else. else. 
So it's interesting, really. I found that in India as well. Yeah. Caste system set also in, instills in you a kind of a don't get above your station and this is what you're about and this is it. Yes. It's a very interesting approach to humanity. Yes. yes. The Varanasi thing is interesting when they send those. Have bodies. you been there? I haven't been. I've been to India a lot, but yes. I never got to Varanasi. But a friend of mine lived there and he said that when the, when the bodies go round the bend, there's a whole pile of people who are in the water taking rings and searching them. And then they go down and there's crocodiles or something further yeah, down. Yeah, they yeah. get eaten and that's it. They're gone. And, 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 and in the side streets, they stack them for storage. You know? Yeah. But it's a death cult. But yes. I mean, they sell postcards of, of dead bodies, you know, yeah. which I, I, I find incredibly disturbing. Yeah. It's very professional the way they do it. I don't know how we got onto burning dead people. Well, we were just, I was just <laughs> trying to see what, what sort of world you feel were in. A, lo- a lot of things seem to be happening, but... It, bad things but they, my only take on it is this should be happening more quickly or maybe you know, we're just getting wind of them we're getting because we're, 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 we're so connected we're so connected you know it's yeah all, it's, if something happens in Varanasi today on the news be, tonight, be, and then it, yes yeah, yeah you know, it might have taken a week or 10 days to yeah. even get there and even then it would be sketchy in terms yes. of detail everyone has everyone's a journalist everyone everyone's a, a journalist everyone's, everyone's a photographer, a photographer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah everyone's a, and everyone's a podcaster <laughs> Last question. What would you say to the Jesuit boy who was in boarding school if you could go back and whisper in his ear? I, I just, just, just keep at it and don't listen to people who tell you you're, you're, you're useless. That was a recurring theme of, of, yeah. of my childhood. People just telling you you're never going to, you're never going to make much if you carry on like you are. You yeah. know? At school, you know, I had so many punishments in the end that they ran out of punishments. So the only course of action really was to be an outlaw and just not give a shit about them. And that—that's what I would. I now know that I didn't know then. You don't have confidence, do you, when you're seventeen? No. It tends to. I mean, I found that in Ireland as well, or Australia, they call it tall poppy. Where call it what? In, in tall poppy syndrome. Tall poppy. Pop your head up and it gets yeah. cut off. Yes. The the idea that children and I even had it growing up myself, where if you in any way have an idea with your life that might be odd. Yeah, to the masses, you're deemed odd or too clever for your too own good. For your own good, that's the recurring work. phrase. It'll never work. It'll work. never work, and that's the creative people. It's the creative people who get the most. Well, in my day, the, the, the people who went to art school were the people who were no good at games. Yeah, it's as simple as that. The yeah. people who didn't like playing rugby and or whatever. Yeah. People who like rock and roll and were no good at games and wanted to mess about. That's yeah. that doesn't exist. I'm afraid anymore. Well, let's keep the rock and roll going and let's keep the iconoclasm going and let's keep the Freddie Laker going. Freddie Laker. <laughs> we can finish on Freddie. John Whelans, thank you so much for coming on A Pine with Shawnee B and giving me your time today. I really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, the book is Frankenstein's Dog. There'll be a link to it on the blurb. Please go and buy it for John. And I'll also have some links to his uh, galleries where you can also look at his artwork. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Sure.